Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and we've got a special guest uh, with us today. And uh, Ken's got some deep relationship, uh, even, you know, some family uh, ties that go into this, uh, this talk. So I'm excited to get to it. Uh, Ken, why don't you introduce us uh, to uh, today's guest? Today, I am in- delighted to have Jimmy Seibert on our show. Um, I've known Jimmy for a couple of years, but but not closely. Um, we were introduced actually by my daughter, who was at one time, uh, well, she was at one time part of the Antioch Network in the church in San Diego, California, when she was an undergraduate. She moved to Washington, and that's where she got to know Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy is the head of the Antioch Church Network. It's been a big, hard uh, uphill push to get the two of us to be able to coordinate our schedule. We're here, we're here. But we're here, we did it. And I'm really excited that we've managed to do it. Um, Jimmy, we have a lot to talk about, but welcome to the show. It's a delight having you. Thanks, Ken. What an honor, man. Just so proud of the work that you guys do. And more than anything, just uh, you guys' longevity, man. Staying in it for the long haul is so beautiful and so fruitful. And, And I can say... Uh, I see the fruit of y'all's lives in your children. Uh, they are just such a delight, those that we have the privilege of walking with. So way to go, Dad. Well, thank you. We, we've we tried hard. We've prayed a lot. And, <laughs> and God's been faithful. There you go. And God's been faithful. That's right. Um, Jimmy, you are new to much of our audience. They don't know you, but they really should, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. Um you lead, in my opinion, one of the most, perhaps the single most significant church movement in the U.S. today. Uh, you are busy planting churches, winning people to Christ. Uh, you, you do it very effectively, and you're particularly effective with the younger generation. We'll talk about facets of this as we go through the podcast. Um, full disclosure for our audience, both of my older daughters, Rebecca and Anastasia, are deeply involved with Antioch. Rebecca attends with her husband and their son, uh, the Antioch Congregation in Washington, D.C. Rebecca's their main worship leader, and uh, she and her husband are both um, part they're of the They run our training school. Yeah. Yeah, that's husband. right. And then Anastasia... Uh, who is still in the U.S. Army is nevertheless very involved in the in the, what I call the mothership, the main Antioch Church, which Jimmy himself leads in Waco, Texas. So um, anyway, we have we have some connections to Jimmy, even though I myself don't go to an Antioch Church. I'm a huge fan of the movement. Jimmy, tell us a little bit for the benefit of our audience about your journey to faith, ultimately into ministry, and then later on beyond that, how you launched the Antioch movement. Yeah, you know, um, I didn't really grow up in the church and uh, came to Jesus uh, very sovereignly, of course, and as we all have, but when I was 17 years old, so I came to Baylor University is kind of my first faith-based decision. I'm going to get my life together and learn how to walk with God, and um, when I got to Baylor, met a lot of great people, started going to church, Bible studies, it was all kind of new to me. But I ran into that little passage where it says we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor to ourself. Jesus said everything's wrapped up in that, that, those commandments. And I looked around and I said to my buddy one day, do you know anybody that's doing that? <laughs> and he said, I know a lot of people that, you know, 
no God, go to church. But I'm not sure. He said, and I said, are you doing that? And he said, no. And I said, I'm not either, man. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let's find out what he has for us. So with that prayer, um, I jokingly say my girlfriend broke up with me and uh, it left some space for God. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, that was the end of my sophomore year in college. And I am on my way <coughs> driving home from her house after she had finalized uh, the decision. And, um, and I'm saying, God, I want to give you my whole heart. What does that look like? So as I'm driving down I-10 from San Antonio, Texas, to where I grew up in Beaumont, I was going to be working there all summer. I said, what blocks me from my relationship with God or what's a distraction? And so I had a bunch of secular music, some non-God glorifying stuff, and they, these cassette tapes, and I threw them out the window. So I'm done with that then. I'm going to put that, uh, get rid of that. And then uh, I chewed tobacco. I grew up in Southeast Texas. For you Californians, you may not understand that. But uh, that was a part of my life. And it was sitting on my seat. And I said, well, that's probably not helpful. Let's get rid of that. So I threw that out the window. Um, and then I thought to myself, all my life, I've lived my life vicariously through movies and mirroring myself of other people's lives. What if I just cut TV movies out for this summer and found out who Jesus is and what he had for me? Well, the long story short is I decided that I would start in the book of Matthew. I would read a chapter a day. Whatever Jesus did, I would do. Whatever he said to do, I would do it. Now, I had never fully read the Gospels, and probably good thing, because I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about that process, but it's pretty radical. Uh, so I say six days in, I'd given away about everything I owned and forgiven everybody I hadn't planned on forgiving. And my life was already getting changed just by the word of God in simple obedience. Well, fast forward. And, and again, I'll, I'll be brief, but to fast forward by the end of the summer, um, I had been just transformed uh, in through the life and the words of Jesus. And it had been a lot in isolation. I'd work 10 hours a day and then, you know, would just spend a lot of time alone. But God, God did something so deep and so significant. I was getting in my car to drive back to university for my junior year after this summer with Jesus. And as I'm driving back, I'm, I'm, I'm just weeping uncontrollably. And I'm saying, God, what is this? I, what do I do? And I had prayed this prayer at the beginning of the summer as I was driving in the car, as I told you, throwing stuff out the window. And I said, God, if you're real, I'll give you three months of my life to show you, for you to show me who you are. And I, I laughed today thinking, God is so gracious, a mere ant of a man telling the Jolly Green Giant, you know, I will give you, you know, my life. And, um, but as I'm, as by the end of the summer, as I'm driving back, crying, headed back to university, uh, I said, God, what is this? And the Holy Spirit, just voice of God into my car. And he said, you asked me to show you that I was real and I have come and I've come. And e even now, you know, almost 40 years later, 40, I, I'm just overtaken with that. Again, he comes to those who call. And um, so I get back to university and me and some buddies start hanging out one night, talking about what God's doing. And there's a knock at the door. An old friend comes in. He had spent his summer partying and in sin up to his eyeballs. And he just 
confessed his sin and we gathered around and prayed for him. And then there was another knock at the door. And that night, a little gathering of two or three guys just talking about what God was doing at seven ended with a room of about 25 people. We would meet almost nightly for two and a half straight months. And people would get saved, would confess their sins, would get right with God. And we didn't, we didn't, uh, at least uh, some of the guys, of course, had church backgrounds. It was all new to me. And so we would just read the New Testament and say, wow, I think this is Acts 2, 42 through 47. I think, I think this is what we're, we're doing here. And um, one other little piece here, because then that'll, that'll explain, hopefully this is explaining who we are, what we're about. And um, in the middle of this move of God in, at university, um, I was out biking with a guy one day and he's, we were saying, what do we do with this? God's doing all this amazing stuff. What do we do? And the guy said to me, have you ever heard of missions? And I didn't grow up in church background. I said, I've heard the word. What does it mean? And he said, well, missions is when you go tell people about Jesus in countries where they've never heard about Jesus. I said, whoa, that sounds awesome. You know, uh, you know, anybody who's doing it or know anything's about knows anything about it. And he said, well, hey, why don't we go to the church tomorrow and ask around if anybody knows anything about missions? So we were going to this charismatic Baptist church. And they would break the students out into Sunday school classes. And they said, hey, today we have a special guest from uh, Thailand. He's a missionary to Thailand. And he wants to answer the question, what is missions? So if you're interested, go to this class. So, man, we said, we're there. So we go to this little class. The guy unpacks Matthew 28, 19, 20. And, and I'm sitting there in my newfound faith saying, you know what, this guy's right on. Uh, you know, Jesus said this, I, this, okay, he's legit. <laughs> he's legit. I'd read that this summer. And um, so I thought I would go up and affirm him afterwards. Hey man, you know, I really appreciate what you said. Jesus said that. And uh, so I go just to in, uh, affirm him afterwards. And he laughed and he said, well, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I have a friend that looks for lost tribes in the country of Papua New Guinea. And there's still cannibal tribes out there and those who've never heard. And he would love a couple of young guys to join him for the summer. Uh, would you want to do it? And, you know, again, knowing nothing. Yes. So uh, that was in September of, the, of my junior year. And when it took me till April to realize that New Guinea wasn't in Africa. Uh, for those who are listening that think it is, I just want you to know it's not. It's above Papua New Guinea. But it is similar to Africa. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, during that summer, uh, we saw churches planted. Uh, we met uh, guys that had seen people raised from the dead. If the power of God was not commiserate with your message, the witch doctor had a plan. So you had to have a victorious Jesus who manifested everything in the scripture to be victorious. And so we, we got a chance to experience that, live that, taste it, touch it. And um, so in, in one way, I got ruined for anything ordinary. The book of Acts was not only something we had experienced through repentance and confession and a little bit of the power of God in our lives, but being in New Guinea allowed us to see the demonstration and actually not just the kind of theological outworking of it, but the need, the desperate need for the power of God to witness of Jesus. Um, and it would change our lives. So 
bottom line is when Laura and I got out of university, it worked in business for a short while. We said, God, what do we do with all these things in our heart? We approached this little Baptist church, not little, but Baptist church that, and said, Hey, could we start a little missions training school that would give students coming out of Baylor, particularly a gap year, nine months in the city, three months overseas. That began in 1987. Eventually, by 1991, we started planting churches through these groups of students that would come out. And in 99, after serving in that local church for 12 years, they blessed us, sent us out to start Antioch Community Church and continue to facilitate our church planning that we were doing around the world. Fast forward, 2023, here we are. And uh, we have 47 U.S. churches that train and send and disciple in the city and uh, hopefully launch people around the world. And we have 120 locations in 48 nations where we have church planning movements, church planning initiatives going on around the world. There we go. What an amazing story. <laughs> I, I think it's really funny that, you know, you you were gracious enough to offer the Lord three months of your life. So oh, you could work I mean, it all out. golly, what, what, a, what an offering. <laughs> so, I mean, that just shows you the grace of God. I mean, exactly. he, he is so gracious to our stupidity. <laughs> the morning that I visited your church in Waco with my daughter, Anna, it was earlier this year when she was moving um, because of a new assignment with the military. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I think you baptized over 100 people that morning. Yeah. In church. And it was it was quite the epic uh, baptismal service. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to, I just want to tell our listeners what Jimmy's talking about. This is legit and real. This is not mm -hmm. just somebody telling, you know, tales out of school or something. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. I just love what you guys do. I brag about your movement everywhere oh, I go. Thank and you, Ken. There, you know, there, I've, I've known a lot of church movements and I've known a lot of church leaders, but you guys just seem to keep the edge sharp and you stay on the cutting mm -hmm. edge of mm -hmm. what's going on. And I think it's fantastic that you figured out a way to do that. Yeah. Thank you, brother. So you mentioned um, when you got to, they call it PNG in Australia. It's kind yes, of yeah. a little bit North and a little bit Northeast of Australia. When you got to Papua New Guinea to PNG, when you got there, um, you said you realized the desperate need for signs and wonders, miracles, whatever. Apparently, this is part of what drew you into the emphases that you have. Can you give us an example or two of what that looked like when you were in theater? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were with two different missionaries. Uh, first, first guy, uh, he would identify where there were lost, unengaged people, and then we would go there and... Um, you know, it was always a trek, you know, through the mountains, through the rivers, just wild stories I could tell. But I'll fast forward to first village we landed in had never seen a person with white skin, had never really engaged a Westerner uh, of any color. And um, we pull up to this village in this hand dugout canoe. And the way the guy would share the gospel with these tribes was he would get a generator and he would show slides. Now that alone would wow, but he would show um, uh, the slideshows of Adam and Eve and explain Adam and Eve. He would show Noah in the flood, and then we would talk about Jesus. And the reason he would, because in all of these villages, 
in New Guinea, they had folklore stories that have been handed down through the generations of creation. They didn't call it Adam and Eve, but they had a creation story. They had a flood story, but it wasn't named Noah. And so he would identify with their family, you know, with their heart traditions through their heart language. And most of these guys were animists. So like in this first village, there were uh, skeletons and bones in the trees, worshiped to ancestors, which doctor sits on the front row. He has all his incantations and stuff. People live in fear. And so we say the same God that created you, the same God that brought Noah through the flood and is the same God that is trying to put uh, save you today and put you on firm ground. And you don't have to live in fear anymore. You can live uh, in love and you can live in hope and forgiveness. And we share the gospel. And so we, there's three of us, three of our college buddies or two, me and two of our college buddies and the missionary guy. And um, so this village of about a hundred is hearing this presentation and we're praying on the front row and, um, the village chief, they pause at the end of the presentation. He comes up and he asks a few questions and everybody's listening to the missionary and the village chief talk it through, actually through three translators. And um, and then um, the chief finally says, we need this Jesus. What shall we do? And he explains what to do. And he says, all right, tribe, we all need Jesus. It says we're to bow our knee. Everybody bow your knees. The whole village gets on their knees. Now, again, only God knows the hearts of each one, but everybody cries out for Jesus to come in the presence of God just overwhelms us. Okay. So amazing. Well, they then uh, hear uh, that uh, in this missionary, actually the first guy was not that charismatic, actually. Uh, he was open to everything you have to be, but he wasn't like a, uh, intentional about it. But, um, they heard that, uh, okay, your God heals. Well, we want you to pray for people. So, uh, and then they would take us to other villages to share the gospel and to pray for people. So the last day we're there, they send, the, there's an old man that has is dying of cancer. He hasn't been off his mat in two and a half months. And they ask us, send for the missionaries. I either want to die or I want to be healed. So they we come, climb up into this hut. You know, it's that classic scene, dusk and you know, mosquito netting and this guy's, I put my whole uh, hand around his arm. And of course we lead him to Jesus. And we say, you know, of course, God wants to heal your heart. And, and so he's saved peace and presence of God. And then we pray for him and, you know, we're just kids. We're just learning this stuff. And the missionaries, not really, that's just not his gig. So, but we're believing actually more than he is. And in the name of Jesus, be healed, rise up. You know, we're kind of drawn on anything we can find. And, um, and we asked the guy, you know, do you feel better? And he said, my heart feels peaceful, but my body does not, my the body does not change. And, you know, basically we said, well, I knew it, you know, I mean, we tried. So we kind of, you know, joyfully, dejectedly go out of the hut and we go back to our tents. The next morning we get up and we're packing up to leave. And this shout goes through the village. They come running. And they said, you cannot leave. You cannot leave. The old man lives. The old man lives. And um, the spirit of God, after we left, had hit him. He had risen up off his bed, had eaten a substance meal for the first time in two and a half months. Or, and, and then he had uh, was going to make us breakfast and have a big celebration for the God who heals. And so 
that was that was kind of the beginning of our deal. Well, I just got to fast forward because I know you'll love this. The second guy we were with was a guy that had planted over 60 churches and he had come and I was an Australian missionary guy named Fred Peatman, dear, dearest man in the world. And they had seen 11 people raised from the dead in the last five years. And, you know, we had heard of this stuff and we had hoped in this stuff, but, you know, I still wanted to meet somebody that had been raised from the dead. So I said, could we meet somebody? He said, yeah, you know, kind of Mama Lou or whatever her last name was, you know, Mama Lou, she's on our base here and ask her. And um, so they do the whole open wake thing in their village for three days and people come by and the body's there and then they burn the body, right? That's kind of was their tradition. Well, it was the second day in and uh, the the leaders who um, Fred had led to the Lord asked, would you pray for her to be raised from the dead? And Fred said, well, yeah, I'll pray for her. And so she describes it this way. She said, I am in the presence of Jesus and I hear this voice and it's not Jesus. And I'm like, what is that voice? She said, that's brother Fred, brother Fred. He's saying, come back in the name of Jesus. And she said, I'm sitting there in the presence of Jesus saying, no, no, no. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, I'm sending you back. I still have a purpose for you. And she said, I came in back into my body and my body was totally healed. And I prayed and served the Lord faithfully and witnessed every day for his glory, you know, until I see him again. Um, so we, at, in that situation, we spent 10 days with this guy and had incredible experiences in the villages and seeing the power of God, the presence of God, meeting people who uh, couldn't read at all, but they needed to be leaders. So Fred laid hands on them. They could read the Bible only. Um, those kind of things. So the whole New Testament was in living color with a, with a man of incredible integrity. This wasn't a, this wasn't a, a show. This was substantive, authentic. Nobody knew, and very few people today know who Fred Peatman is, but a godly man, he and his wife and children laid their lives down and, and shaped, I think, the future of, of P&G from the inside out, living in the interior, planting churches, and seeing the book of Acts come alive. Well, coming out of that at 20 years old, I mean, I'm ruined. I'm done. Like, hey, so when I got back to the States and people were arguing, you know, is tongues for real? I'm like, that is the least of my concerns. Um, if I was you, I would, I would probably uh, ask for every gift of the spirit because you need it and people need it. <laughs> and so this isn't about proving anything. This is about need in our hearts and, and uh, need to glorify Jesus. So what a story. Praise God. I, I, some years ago now, maybe six or seven, I spent a fair amount of time traveling around and uh, now it's called West Papua, at least the Indonesian side is. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we had a lot of very, very dramatic. Uh, we didn't raise anyone from the dead, but we we had a lot of really dramatic miracles. Mm -hmm. And I have a I have a friend from college whose mother died and was placed on a funeral uh, pyre in northern Mexico, and they were about to light the fire. They gathered around in prayer. Everybody joined hands, bowed their heads, they prayed, and she sat up on the pyre. She'd been dead for four days. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was no doubt that she was dead and she went on to live for many, many more years. But when she died the second time, she had enough sense to stay dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. My, my, my deal is uh, unless it's, you know, demonic, 
a, a, a takeout. Uh, my deal is just DNR, man. Just leave me alone. Yeah. Send That's me it. on. <laughs> That's it. Airmail me home. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, so um, this gives everybody a little bit of a feel for <laughs> where you're coming from and some of your early <laughs> formative experiences. One of the things that impresses me most about Antioch is the uh, combination of the deep found, uh, foundation in the word of God. You're a very good preacher. Um, mm. you're, you're, the people who lead your congregations are really centered in the word. They, they don't play fast and loose with what it says. But you're also open to the supernatural, as you just demonstrated. Um, that can be a very difficult balance to maintain. And uh, how do you keep those two things in balance? How do you keep them both in the forefront? Yeah, you know, um, uh, the, the, in, in the simplest form um, is devotional life is our number one value in the movement. So your personal in, uh, devotion time with Jesus is central. Uh, we just finished a little book called Alone with God, which is kind of 30 years of all the different tools we've trained, equipped, and discipled people in. Because my whole deal is if you're not spending time in word, worship, prayer, and listening as the centerpiece of your day, then you're not going to ultimately live a sustained, fruitful life, right? To abide in Jesus, I got to put the stake in the ground at the beginning of the day. I often say, the world, the flesh, and the devil is coming at full winds, but you need to put the stake in the ground to begin the day to, to be, you know, countercultural. And so that's been our number one value. So that makes us people of the word by nature. Revelation comes by the word, right? And then obviously it makes us people of prayer and uh, pray, people who listen to the voice of God. And, um, you know, I could, of course, get, you know, we're, we're preachers and trainers and all that. I could talk for hours, but I, I, I have found that ultimately our commitment, not just to first love for Jesus, but to first place for Jesus and practically training, teaching and guiding everyone. I mean, everybody on staff, everyone in our movement, they have had that side-by-side -side training, that question asked over and over again, how's your devotional life? How can I help you? And how can we continue to walk forward? Super important. That's, it's, it's really interesting. The times that you and I have had a chance to interact, um, I've always been struck by how similar your foundational years as a believer were and to mine. I don't know. I don't know who got started first and I don't know how it happened that we both. I think you're a little older. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> I might, I don't know if I am or not, but I'm not going to discuss my age on here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so this, this matter of intimacy with God, but, but you've actually unpacked it. People throw around the term intimacy with God and it's kind of a slogan, but you've described a bit what that means, reading the Bible, mm -hmm. listening to the voice of God, making time for that, making it the centerpiece of your day, um, having times of prayer worship and, and maintaining that as a discipline yes. you know we don't talk as much about um quiet times in modern christianity in the on the american stage or for that matter in europe i'm not saying people don't do it but it sure. used to be a really big emphasis in yeah. christianity it doesn't get emphasized as much so clearly that's a it's a really important thing and i i agree it's one of your foundational values, I think. What are some of the other values that you have built the Antioch movement around? 
Yeah, I mean, we 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 uh, basically we call it one three five. So our slogan is a passion for Jesus, His purposes in the earth. That kind of gives us our heart posture. We're in it for Him and them at our expense. Jesus, we're we're all in. Then we say what we do is everywhere we go, we encounter disciple and we live on mission. So it's an encounter with God morning by morning. It's living in his presence, looking for him at work day by day, this real time encounters with God and living in his presence. Disciple making is core for us. And we, we define it this way, not only being a disciple, but life on life discipleship and investment in another. So if I'm investing in somebody, the only way I'll, I'll do it is if they guarantee me they're going to invest in somebody else. So keeping the multiplication, excuse me, of life on life discipleship going uh, through basic, you know, investment in people in groups of two and three who do it with two and three, et cetera. And then that third one is living on mission, which means sharing the gospel every day, everywhere we go. We train everybody. How do you pray for a waitress? How do you uh, see a need and meet it? Uh, can you share the gospel effectively and lead somebody to him? Uh, how do you hear God? Words of knowledge so that I can help open hearts so that I can preach the gospel. And of course, living on mission is so broad, active in our faith, in the workplace, in our spheres and around the world. So encounter disciple mission is the three. And then with, there's the five is what we call the five circles of church. And the way I say it this way, is life is a series of meetings that you show up for that determine your destiny. And our five circles of church are, number one, me and Jesus, devotional life. Circle two, discipleship, life on life, who are you meeting with consistently? Circle three is house church or life group, we call it. What does that look like? Your small group community, church gathered to equip, celebrate what God's doing in the community. And then circle five is living on mission in spheres and workplace. Some of that's a little bit redundant, but it's redundant on purpose. So we call it 135. Encounter Disciple Mission would be the core of that. And um, and, I, and I would say, and you guys, uh, you know, we're, we've all been around long enough. There's slogans and there's everything else. But our, our probably one thing that people ask about is, is the intentionality piece. It's not what you believe. It's what you activate and do that yeah. ultimately transformed my own life, but also those around me. So trying to create an authentic people who actually do the word of God, not out of works or some kind of proving some to anybody, but out of the grace of God, committed to being doers of the word, not merely hearers. So that is our constant evaluation mantra um, leadership, I guess, uh, in the way that we do things. I love it. Well, what you're describing is how you create a culture. Yeah. that is unique to your movement. I'm not saying others may not have these same yeah. values, but one of the things, sure. I know you were influenced by John Wimber. Um, yeah. John Wimber used to say that the way you create culture is first of all, by knowing what your values are and being right. able to articulate them, which you've just done. Yep. And he always said, you know, you could get a bunch of people in a room, you might end up with 40 things that everybody agrees or values. But at the end of the day, everybody really emphasizes sort of five-ish, maybe six, maybe four, but kind of in that range. So values, and then you you prioritize those values because nothing, you can't have everything be number one. Yes. And so you prioritize the values and then you find practices to enflesh or incarnate or embody the very things that are your values. And so 
Um, you told us a, a fair amount just in this brief time we've been together so far about values. You talked a bit about how you prioritize them. Uh, 135 is articulating some of that. And then you've got practices. So uh, what are what are your key ministry emphases? Now, you, you've, you've defined a couple of those, too. You sure. talked about life groups, large congregation. But what are some of the other things that define and enflesh the culture of Antioch to give people a feel for what that's about? Yeah, you know, um, when because, you know, people have visited through the years, you know, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Uh, and that kind of thing. And so, um, though I say it in different ways, I, I tried, to, I've tried to identify what are the game changers or the uniquenesses. And some of this will be repeat, repeated stuff, but maybe also helpful. You know, one of my phrases is everybody wants a, a New Testament outcome without a New Testament lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You can and you can see the power of God in a moment. God spoke through a donkey. But if you want a consistent, authentic life that has to be dealt with, right, like the people have to respond or not to the way we live our lives. So I, I kind of always go to a whiteboard with visiting groups and I do five things. Devotional life number one. So I said, these are our five activation values, devotional life. And then I have everybody go around the room and I say, take a piece of paper. This will be anonymous. I'm not going to look at it and write down Sunday through Saturday uh, how much time you spend in word worship and prayer on a daily basis. And I said, I, I'm, I'm not a legalist, but I'm not counting driving in the car. Please pray while you're in the car. Please memorize scripture throughout the day. But I just want to know you sitting alone with Jesus. The average, and, and I've had pastors of biggest mega churches in America sit with me through this exercise, and I would say the average for an American pastor, leader, missions leader, is about 20 minutes a day, and um, and I make them average it out, like, you know, whatever, and, uh, and so then what I respond to them is I said, look, I can't stay out of sin at 20 minutes a day, let alone hold the ground. And for sure, I can't change the world. So I don't know what you're doing, but I'm weaker than you. I, I mean, I I must be just one of these guys that just needs more help. But it just takes me a little more of the rule and reign of God, renewing my mind, heart, and body for me to actually be who I'm called to be. And and if you're if you came to visit to find out how we do missions or plant churches or whatever, you might want to kind of start here. Uh, because I can't guarantee you that these strategies, principles, and, you know, our processes are going to get you the outcome you want without the spirit of God in the middle. So we did this little devotional. And I'll speed up the others. Second one is life on life discipleship. Again, um, who are the two or three people that you're investing in who are investing in two or three other people? If it's not a multiplication activation, you're kidding yourself to think you're going to have a movement. Um, then the third one is evangelism. Does everybody you know know that you know Jesus? Do you feel equipped? When's the last time you led somebody to Jesus personally, where they actually responded to the gospel, were saved, and you began a process of helping them? If I said, you know, you may have done it to start the church, but are you doing it 10 years later? And I don't count preaching the gospel from the stage, though we should. Tom. So you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm yeah. challenging, but I'm saying this isn't just for me as a leader user. This is for every believer to be able to have the opportunity to live out the gospel, right? So then the fourth one is holiness. 
And if I didn't get them on the first three, then we get this one. And, and then I try to describe it. I said, there anything that you're doing that you don't want any of us to know? Well, whatever that is, that's where the enemy's eating your lunch and wedging a gap into your family, your life, and your ministry. you got to decide that everything's in the light and uh, or the enemy's yanking your chain at will whenever he wants. You can get away with it for a while, but you can't get away with it for a lifetime. So I, I justify it. Is there anything you're doing that Jesus doesn't like? You know, and so you fill in the blank. I don't even try to fill in the blank for him. I just kind of let him evaluate then. But then the fifth one, and this was spe uh, specifically hits Westerners, American churches, and that is financial modesty. And here's my point. We are not, I'm not the lifestyle police, uh, I, but my point is not about, uh, please make a lot of money, be generous. I mean, I, or whatever. It's not about what you make or whatever, but financial modesty, I put it this way. Live simply, work diligently, and give generously. And yeah. by living simply just means live within your means. Don't be greedy beyond what God's given you. And if God's given you millions of dollars and you want to build a big house and share and love and care for people, praise God, I love people that have that ministry. So that can still be under living simply. Just don't leverage yourself out out of your greed and your anxiety for more. Live simply, work diligently, give generously. And, um, and then I just, that one, I really kind of unpack, but each of those have become our radical culture. When we're doing those on full tilt, people stand in awe that they, they, they don't know what to do with it. An example would be maybe once a year now, I don't, you know, it's more led by the spirit, but if I speak on finances, I'll kind of go through, let's simply work generously. And then I'll say, everybody in the auditorium, come to the front who has need. And I said, I can't guarantee anybody's going to give you anything. This isn't about handout Sunday. This is about we're going to pray that God would prosper you, meet with you, speak to you, you know, what you need to do and all this so forth. So I have everybody come to the front. And then invariably, I'll just say, congregation, look at the people at the front. If God put your heart on somebody to pray for, go pray for them. If you feel led to give money, give money. And we have had hundreds of thousands of dollars spread through hands. I always give away what I have to start throughout the sermon. And I end up with hundreds of dollars to give away. Uh, just, to, just to give you one, uh, I mean, I could just, this, this I could go for hours, but let me just give you an example at the level that this goes to. Some of you guys uh, are familiar with the deal called Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines. It's kind of a craze here. Um, sure. So they, they grew up in our church and were part of our, are, are a part of our church. When you get more famous, you can't come that much to the corporate setting. But dear, dear friends, sweet people love Jesus. But they were before they got the breakthrough uh, or whatever, the, the pilot show that turned into everything they do. Um, we were doing that activity. And, you know, people get like give $20 to somebody or 100 bucks or whatever. And there's these beautiful stories. But one of our business guys knew that Chip and Jenna were struggling. They were trying to flip houses and they had a real gift, but they were, there was a cash flow issue and they were wrestling through, we're going to have to go bankrupt. So this business guy and his wife prayed, God, who would he give to? And God speaks to him. They walk over to Chip and Joanna, uh, who didn't come to the front, but were in big need. Everyone, uh, they knew it. And they walked over and they said, God spoke to us to give you $125,000. Said, it's not a loan. This is a gift. 
if God blesses you, just pay it forward, you know, uh, give as it's been given to you. But we just feel prompted by God. We believe in you. We're with you. And that hopefully this will tide you over to be able to continue to end what God has for you. They pray for him. They bless him. They give him the 125,000. Within two months, HGTV had called. They do the pilot. They're able to hang through that tough spot. And the rest is history. Um, they've done well. And so, uh, and then, and they've been incredibly generous everywhere they go. Uh, but they're generous because somebody was generous with them. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, Jimmy, you laid out five things here. Um, you didn't use any notes. It's clearly, it just flows out of who you are. You've lived mm -hmm. this lifestyle for years. Um, I want to, I want to say this, I've said this different places when I've you know traveled and preached. I try not to make it accusatory, but I think it's nevertheless a pretty good diagnosis of what what's really wrong with American culture on the church side. I think many Christians live very worldly lives yes. and they don't even realize it. And one of the metrics of that is, of course, money. There are some others as well that deal with holiness yep. and devotion and so forth. But the bottom line is many Christians have lives that don't really look materially different. I shouldn't use the word materially. Don't look substantially different yes. right. from the world around us. And so we wonder, why are we not making an impact on the world around us? And the answer is because they can't tell that we aren't them. Right. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. So what you've just done is given people some uh, particular things to think about in terms of their own lifestyles uh, that that might put the finger on, okay, so where am I worldly? Where am I more like the world sure. than like the gospel? Yeah. And Kent, my deal around all this, again, after years of doing this, of course, the fear for American uh, people, especially group of churches, is this going to earn legalistic and all this stuff. And my deal is, look, it's not legalism if you want to do it. Like, I want to be close to Jesus. I'd like to actually live out the Bible in my lifetime. I actually believe that it's doable, but right. I don't But I don't get to do it on my terms. I do it on his terms. So it's more of a, a call to lordship than it is to how do you do this? How do you do that? It's like, hey, man, if that if I ruffled your feathers by listing those five things, instead of deep getting defensive, what if you just say, hey, what did Jesus say about that? And, you know, my deal, if Jesus did it, have a ball, man. If he didn't, I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, if he likes it, go for it. it you know, somebody says, what can I watch? I said, well, sit down with Jesus and, and enjoy whatever he likes. And if he doesn't like it, I probably wouldn't do it. You know, this <laughs> is not that difficult. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being religious. I'm living with a person. The living God, that's what that's what we believe, right? Amen. Um, um, this uh, oh, this theologian named Paul Borthwick said this. He said, we have evangelical minds and pagan bodies. We have beliefs of what we should be, but our lifestyles do not agree with it. And therefore, we wonder why it doesn't work more. And therefore, then we create, we reduce it to principles instead of person because we're not willing to deal with surrender. Amen. I love it. I love it. So good. Um, so this all leads us to the next question I have. And I think I think you've actually given us a pretty good chunk of the answer already. But um, here in the U.S., you are having a unique impact on millennials, which um, I looked this up to make sure I have my facts right. Uh, they're generally defined as those born between 1980 
1995. And also uh, Gen Z, which are born from 96 on to 2005. And so this group collectively encompasses about one third of the U.S. population. I don't think people always realize wow. that, but it's a gigantic percentage. Um, what are the specific felt needs that you commonly see in these two population groups and how are you addressing them? I think some of what you said suggests that you're telling them how to make life work. And with that, you're scratching a felt need for significance. But maybe you want to say more even than that and also talk a bit to the uh, the felt needs of that era of that age group, because everybody's aware we need to do something to get the, the youth sure. on board with the Lord. Yeah. So let me make a general statement, Ken, because, of course, I've been asked this question for years because we started as a young people's movement and we had a, a tremendous revival in the 90s that fueled a lot of what we do around the world. And um, I had somebody at the end of the 90s, uh, Chris, like a Christianity Today type thing, reach out and said, how are y'all reaching so many students and activating the permission? And, you know, what are the trends and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, let me think about that. I think because we actually believe in Jesus and we passionately worship him and love him and it's authentic. I think they just want to know, is he real? And we yeah. actually believe he is. And then I said, and then we do small groups and discipleship because people need people and they actually they gather when it's real and people actually gather around God and it, it kind of works. And, and then we give them something to do that is kind of like God-like and, and try to really get serious about that. And so they don't just read the Bible, but they get to pray for the sick or they get to, you know, be involved in the kingdom activity. And I, I, I kind of ended the article, of course, I said a few other cute things, I'm sure, but I, but I, I always just said, Hey, I think it's just, it's simpler than we think it is. People want authentic authenticity uh, in their relationship with God. And they want to believe that it's real and and uh, you can obtainable. People want and die desperate for community and want it in a very meaningful way. And if it's done well in love, then, hey, people will be drawn and people want a, a mission. So just kind of fast forward because we're on a, in my um, little world, I call it Antioch 3.0. This is our third iteration. We've kind of done 15-year runs for young people who then grow a movement, and then we mature, and then we do it again, and we're kind of on the third iteration of this. And um, there's just a fresh new influx of Gen Z and millennials. And the interesting thing about these guys that um, – so the, the Gen X guys were the toughest guys. They were the jaded deconstructionist and, and kind of the front end of the millennial crowd deconstructing everything and everybody. And, you know, here's my deal about that stuff. You know, so many people followed that trail and tried to create church to appease that. And my deal is, look, man, uh, protests, people run out of energy for protests. Uh, hope, uh, the, uh, the future, the history is for those who give hope. You, you got to have people that want to go forward. So I, I'm always been about constructing the church as God intended and yes, I understand the deconstructive thoughts, but I don't have the energy for that. I got to put my best energy in loving Jesus and doing the deal. So all that blabbing to say to get to the the, the Gen Z crowd is they uh, are so far removed from religi religi religiosity. They'd like to know somebody that actually believes this stuff. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, they are they are actually the most right and least jaded of the clan. 
So when people, <laughs> so when, when all these uh, poll research guys come out and they say, you know, only whatever, 24% of Gen Z people are engaged in church. Hey, the 24% I know that are engaged, they are core. And I have such great hope because they are leaning in and wanting it all. And that's what's that. And, and there's a, there's a new authenticity and energy around a smaller core. So what if it's smaller? That's the way that Jesus always rebirths things. Right. It just, but if you don't give potency to the core there is, and you if you keep worrying about and thinking about the crowds instead of discipling and, and focusing on the core, you're not going to have a future. So uh, the Gen Zs that I know are desperate for mothers and fathers, not just out of this wounded place, though that's very real, but also out of help us. We'd love to love Jesus. We would love to figure out what God has for our lives. We'd love to be a part of what God's doing on the earth, Just, but do it with us. So if you had the Gen X guys who uh, or the boomers said, empower me, leave me alone. And so we think, because that's what we wanted, that's what they want. They're like, Hey, empower me. Yes, believe in me. But would you do it with me? It's a, it's an amazing deal. And Ken, you know that. I mean, that's how I got to know your kids. We yep. just open our doors. We've always had people live with us, and they show up. Like I was up till midnight with your kids and their friends this week, two nights. <laughs> you know, and um, because once they get talking, they just want to sit in the living room talk about this. I mean, we're we're doing life, you know, and right. Gen Z is looking for moms and dads to do life with, not to be controlled by, but to come alongside and to live out authentic Christianity. And the wilder, the better. And and and, and wild is normal according to the Bible. And I know that's your passion. That's y'all. Yeah, message. yeah, yeah. That's our message. We're in it with you, hundred percent. And um, and in, in one way, we 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 every once in a while jokingly say, we just keep reinventing the original vineyard. We just keep retapping into it again because it's what everybody wants. Authenticity, power of God, reality, no, no showmanship or religiosity. Just give me Jesus. We believe in the church. We believe in church planting and affecting the earth for the glory of God. Who wants to do it? And then, man, I, I just all the all the church naysayers and all the pontificators and pollers and all this stuff. And I know most of these guys, I mean, like I love them and, and it serves a purpose, but I'm not fixating on what we're not. I'm looking at what is, and that it is good. I get to, I get to meet the good guys. And, and I, and I'm just saying, I'm going to pour into them 10 X because our, um, what, what I've said is um, preaching these days, uh, you know, we, we have a pretty large church, you know, a lot of people show up, but my deal is, I'm preaching to the disciples and let the crowds watch until they yep. want to be disciples. And, and we got caught somewhere. Once we got a little bigger, we got caught in the pressure of pleasing the crowds. And I said, popularity does not lead to potency. So God allows cyclical pruning so that we can be potent again. And that's kind of how I see it. I love that. God allows cyclical pruning so we can be potent again. Yes, I mean, it's very biblical. Every branch in me that bears fruit, my father prunes that it would bear more fruit. But yeah. we don't we don't often think in those terms. And I've said many times um, from stages that I think the, the big failing of the megachurch movement that 
overtook our country, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the big failing there was that they were actually trying to please the crowds rather than to speak to the disciples. And, you know, we see this kind of a pattern. It's articulated different ways throughout uh, the pages of scripture. But when the people of Israel were called out of Egypt, the Lord said, let my people go three days into the wilderness that they may worship me. But it was a mixed multitude who came out of Egypt with Moses. So it was only that sort of dedicated core that were ultimately going to be the ones who entered into worship while the others looked on. And in that, some of them were drawn in and realized the error of their ways. And I guess the others, I don't know where they went. Maybe they just wandered off into the desert or something. But, (laughs) but anyway, I, I, I think you, I think what you're saying is so powerful and so much of what I, I'm, I'm making this recording right now in the hallway Mm -hmm. of the Marriott hotel where the seminary that I'm getting my doctorate holds its uh, its gatherings for this program because there's mm-hmm. enough people they don't have enough space on campus. Wow. Um, so I, I listen to the things that many of the other people in the program share about their churches and mm-hmm. their own congregational settings or whatever their ministry setting is. Some of them are missionaries or whatever. But um, but anyway, it, it's so many of them are frustrated because they're actually pandering to the crowds and they're not actually trying to produce disciples, which was one of the first things you talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about reinforcing that discipleship loop for the benefit of those who want to go on and go deeper with Jesus. I mean, these things, Absolutely. as you say, they're not difficult. The concepts are simple, but staying true to them and executing that might be a little more challenging. Well, and, and the reason is, Ken, because it'll cost you your life. Right. You don't do life on life discipleship without losing your life. And therefore, you got to let go of something else to focus on what you value most. Of course, hopefully Jesus in his presence and distributing his grace through disciple making and surrender. And so so again, the, the beautiful thing about the church is that it's it's made to resurrect. Right. Everything about Jesus is the head of the church. So we're made for resurrection. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So I don't spend a lot of time complaining about the church because I don't, I I get it. It's not like I don't disagree. And I will, again, bring correction where needed personally or to others. I don't have a problem with that as a prophetic voice. And at the same time, look, man, why don't you just be church? Could somebody just stand up and be church? Because by nature, it is life-giving. It's the manifest glory of God. It's the hope of God. It's the help of God. Everything about that. So let's spend our best energy being the church so that we can display God's glory in the earth. And whatever the ailment of society is, it's an inside out approach for transformation. And again, I'm in a lot of those discussions, how do you transform society and, you know, America's falling apart and so on and so forth. And my deal is, look, it's spiritually sick. I get it. So let's get well. And, and that's, one, that's one person at a time. And you're going to need to start just digging in and, and investing in people. And there's nobody like Gen Z to start with. They're, 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 they're aching for an authentic investment that allows them to be life-giving disciples. Amen. Love this. Love this so much. Oh, gosh. I, we could let this podcast go on forever, but uh, <laughs> we can't because all, all yes. three of us have other things we've got to get yes. to. Um, let me just say this. Um, so I know you guys have these church planning weekends and before either of my kids were involved in Antioch, I had a, 
a good friend who used to travel with me is kind of my protege. He got involved in Antioch, San Diego, and he told me about some of the things you guys would do where you'd send a, a group of people into whatever area. Uh, when he was in San Diego, they would go across the border into yeah. just the very northern region of Mexico. But, but anyway, these groups go out, they spend a weekend, um, you know, in, I don't know what the right word is without triggering somebody, but I'll say infiltrating a community, uh, <laughs> preaching the gospel, uh, face painting, handing out tracts, uh, sure. evangelizing, obviously. And at the end of a weekend, they withdraw and they leave a church in situ of which maybe 80% of those who have come to Christ will become the core of that new church that then goes on to grow and thrive. Where did you get this idea for church planting and what are some of the keys to making it work? Yeah, um, I, I would say that, you know, like what you just said, we, we have done that and we do do that, uh, but we have multiple, of course, uh, ways that we engage a, a city, you know, um, and different ways that we do things. I think, I think the, let me just maybe lay the principle out. And um, the principle is that wherever uh, the church is not, we want the church to be. And we need to show up as the church and demonstrate and manifest Jesus, uh, again, through public word worship and prayer in a park or in a neighborhood or you know, going door to door or, or inviting people to a gathering, you know, that's where the church planning weekend. And again, um, we, have, we do we do different things in different ways, right, in different countries. But the, the whole point is we want to do church in such a way that we can reproduce it wherever we go. And when we uh, have the opportunity, it would be more of a Western context or maybe a Latin American context. You can go and do that saturation of a city um kind of activities that you just described but remember the, the whole deal is not just who i prayed with but who i'm then going to go to their house and ask them to gather their family and then we're going to say let's open the bible together and mm -hmm. what does god say about salvation what does god say about healing is there anybody sick in your house so the key is not just the evangelistic park outreach and who got saved and who wants to come to the follow-up meeting but we actually followed them to their houses. So you and your household shall be saved. So because we think church planting and not just evangelistic crusade, we kind of start uh, chart stats. If we've done an outreach for summer or whatever is how many gospel presentations, how many sick people to pray for, how many discover Bible studies did you start in households and how many house churches did you start? So, mm -hmm. It's a four metric journey, whether you're there for a day or if you're there for a month, or of course, for the long haul guys, a three to five year initiative. Um, these are the metrics, but they're, they're all connected. It's not one dimensional. So whatever our strategy is, it's going to have an outworking of, can we come to your house and pray for your sick and share the gospel and have you, help you share the gospel with your neighbors and friends so that the gospel then has takes root and it's yeah. not the the anointed evangelist in the park that's the draw god moves powerfully through that and we use that gift and that tool but it's unto something and because we think church planting by nature and again of course we have all kinds of failures and all kinds of ups and downs in that journey but we are committed to continually growing in that 
then we just kind of view outreach a little bit different than just blessing. We view it as a building activity. And, and, and maybe that's just one little thing I would say. We often talk about blessing and building. Uh, blessing is when you use your gift to, uh, you know, if I go speak at a church and they're blessed and helped and God does incredible things. That That's the itinerant ministry is a blessing to the body of Christ. And it does build people up in the inner man. But a building ministry is committed to putting in roots for longevity, whether that's even the practices that we do or the follow-up that we do or our willingness to stay and see it through. So, um, so there's this building and blessing thing that's always intention. And um, I would say part of our calling is to be more builders and hopefully we bless everywhere we go, but we go in with the idea of um, putting something in the ground that can't be pulled out, which takes us to that step three, step four, even in a park outreach and hopes that something remains that we can then follow up with and care for and hopefully activate into a larger move of God. For those of our listeners who didn't catch it, Jimmy was using the language of builder and Paul says, as a wise master builder, mm -hmm. I laid a foundation. I know that wasn't accidental that he was using that mm -hmm. language, but I do want to flag it for all of our listeners that they would recognize the, uh, the importance of what Jimmy's saying. Well, okay, Jimmy, I think we've about reached the end of our time. Um, if people want to know more about the Antioch movement, where can they go to find that information? Yeah, so, um, so Antioch.org. You just go to Antioch.org. The only thing it'll ask you for is an email and a password. We just need to do that because we work all over the world. Just need to know who's who's viewing our stuff. But there's no nothing to sign up. Nobody's going to trail you. Nobody's going to do anything. It's just so that you can have access to who we are, Antioch.org. And then you can follow me personally on Instagram, uh, Jimmy Seibert, S-E-I-B-E-R-T. And then you can go to AntiochWaco.com. And that's the mothership. And we house all of our teachings, trainings, stuff that we do on there. So you got three things, Antioch.org. You got Jimmy Seibert on Instagram and all that stuff. And then you have AntiochWaco.com. Beautiful. Jimmy, thanks so much for being on the show. And by the way, thank you for taking good care of my daughters. Since oh. Living in my home. <laughs> it's the greatest fruit of your life, by the way. They they are the fruit of your life. Thank you guys for raising a godly heritage. We are we are grateful and grateful for you guys, Ken. Just so grateful, Grant. Great to meet you. So grateful for all that God's doing. And and my hope and uh, desire is that hey, may God continue to pull us together for a greater glory. Yeah, Amen, Amen. Jimmy, you want to pray us out, and then we'll, we'll yeah. close it up. So, Lord, we're asking that these conversations and words would activate a move of the Holy Spirit throughout our nation and the nations of the earth. Whoever's listening right now, you would awaken their inner man to believe again that all things are possible. Be stirred in the Holy Spirit to worship and to pray and to listen and to respond to you. I pray even, God, that out of our conversation, there would be a repentance, a returning to the roots of our faith. And Lord, we do pray, would you continue to coalesce the call for such a time as this? Would you continue, oh God, your move of the spirit in yes. hearts and minds? May you keep our faith high, our hope clear. And God, may you continue to network your sons and daughters together all over the earth 
so that every space and place where the glory of Jesus is not made manifest, that we would be activated to it and that we would in our generation see every tribe, tongue and nation here and have the opportunity to know so that you can come again. Lord, we love you. We honor you. Bless my brothers, their families today and everyone that's listening. God, again, just speak to them by your spirit touch their hearts and activate their faith as a part of what you're doing in this hour in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Thanks for being on the show, Jimmy. And uh, we'll let you go. Cause again, all right. I know we all have things Love to do. All right. Thank Blessings. Bye-bye. The fusion conference is fast approaching. We would love to have you attend the event in Nashville with us. If you're interested in registering for the Fusion Conference, you can click on the link in the description of this podcast and register today.